Now, St. Ethelberga was an extraordinary woman. Um, she was the first abbess looking after monks and nuns. She's in the sixth century. Her brother was the Bishop of London, wanted to marry her off. She didn't fancy that idea. So instead, she persuaded him to give her the big job. It's a bit like um, the Archbishop of Canterbury's level of spiritual responsibility. But she also was responsible for running the, the abbey and all that that entails. So this was a seriously organized, effective woman. Now, the plague arrived in Barking, where her abbey was. And St. Ethelberga faced a choice. What did she do? Did she choose to close the doors of her abbey and keep the nuns and the monks safe and wait for the plague to pass? Well, St. Ethelberga, unlike myself, was very good at praying. Um, and she had a prayer where she saw, she went to God and she said, what, what do I do? Good woman. And what she saw was a light brighter than the sun at noon. And what she took from that is that her responsibility was not to the community that she served, literally, but her responsibility was to the whole community. So this woman and her women and her men opened the doors, went out, and looked after the people who were dying. And, of course, as a result, they died. Huge risk, massive decision to take. But what I take from that is she was willing to hear God and hear what was being called of her. Now the story, I don't find that inspiring because crikey, what a woman. She's incredible. I don't feel incredible right now. I feel scared. I am overwhelmed by the crisis that we are in. I am overwhelmed by the self-serving politicians that have been voted or supported into power across our world, who are not asking, what am I called to do and who am I responsible for? I don't hear people in power asking, how have I harmed this planet and its life? And what does it take to put it right? What I'm talking about here, really, is shared responsibility and what it takes to create it. One of the most enormous disconnects we're living with is the difference in people's opinion about what's going on in our world, in our climate, and in our politics. By the way, on that, yesterday I complained to the BBC about its coverage of Extinction Rebellion's protests. Uh, if you'd like to uh, also add your name, come find me and I'll give you the link. 
The differences of opinions about our reality and what matters are not being talked about. We're not talking about how we differ in how we see things. Can I ask, when was the last time you had a really good conversation with a friend, someone you love, where you have a very different opinion about one of the big things? So, Brexit, the climate. I was on retreat in August with eight wonderful women to whom I'm enormously close. They are all retired and comfortable physically and emotionally and spiritually. And I raised the climate crisis once and it didn't go down well. I didn't do it again. And these are women that I was on retreat with. I was frightened that I would make it worse. I was frightened I would alienate them more from the subject. Disagreement, it can lead to ruptures in our relationships. We can separate and not reconcile. And this happens, this rupture happens when the harm has not been acknowledged, when we don't talk about it. So those who have caused harm don't fess up. We don't say, I did this. And those who have been harmed have not described their experience. They don't say, when you did that, I was in pain. Instead, all of this is unspoken. It takes up no space. What has happened has not been heard. Last week, I was on a, a wonderful course, and it gave me the chance to have a conversation with the planet. I said to the planet, I have hurt you. I have taken from you, and I have not given back. You are wounded, you are dying. Your life, all of our lives, are under threat. It was a terrifying thing to say. And then I wondered what the earth would say back. I heard howling, pain and confusion. And yet, she still gave. That was overwhelming. Having these conversations is not easy. We aren't taught how to do this. It's not a typical part of our culture. With our closest ones, we don't practice it as a part of how we do things. Where this avoidance of speaking things out gets writ large is when things go badly wrong, when people are made unsafe, when the harm that happens that we call crime then our, justice, criminal, our criminal justice system has the job of naming the harmer or the perpetrator of the violence. The system of the police and the courts describe the offender and their actions. The victim does not have a voice and nor does the offender. 
The speaking, the listening, it happens between the police, the lawyers, the judges, the probation service. The process is passive for those who have been harmed and those who did the harming. It is done to them. All the harm and the harm I have is zero part. They either watch it or they receive it. And at no point, at no point, are they asked, what would it take to make it right? So there's an alternative approach that's been around for a while. It's called restorative justice. Many of you will have heard of it. It's been in parts of criminal justice systems since the 70s. It earns, owes a lot to First Nations approach to justice. It asks everyone involved some basic questions. What happened? What were you thinking at the time? How did it affect you and others? And what does it take to make it right? So this is the conversation brought into active experience. It is a chance to voice, to acknowledge what is, what the impact has been on all sides, and it is potentially transformative. It takes the unacknowledged feelings of shame for having hurt someone and brings them into the light. I did it. It hurt you, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What does it take to put it right? So why, why am I describing this approach to restorative justice? Well, um, I've just begun training in this approach. And while I was training, my thoughts just kept coming back to the planet. I am the harmer. I have lived a life where for the most part of my time, I have not taken account of the impact of my using the world's resources. I've done bits. I'm a middle-class white girl. You know, I went to art college. But largely, I enjoyed the rich abundance around me and not counted the impact of taking. I have assumed I will be safe physically. I will be fed, I will be watered. I fly to Japan every summer to see my husband's family. I recycle what Islington does, i.e. diddly squat. And without asking, I have assumed the planet will continue to provide me with a place to live. I have been a semi-conscious harmer of my planet. Now, there is a large body of activists standing up and saying, we have to put out the fire as much as we can. I am with them, and I will do my small bit. But I am terrified that not enough of us will. I am scared not enough people will vote for politicians who will make it happen. So I'm wondering, what exactly does it take to have a conversation with others about this? 
others who might still just be glancing or avoiding looking at this. So the restorative approach, it works because it addresses our feelings of shame. I want to say a bit more what I mean by this. When we have caused hurt, the things that we have hurt move away from us. When people move away from us, when connection and trust break down, we do one of four things. We withdraw ourselves. So they move away, we move away. We blame ourselves or we attack ourselves because they've moved away. Or we attack and blame others because they've left us. Or we avoid the whole thing altogether. Stick our head in a bucket of water. Have you felt any of these responses to the crisis that we are in? Our response to the pain of shame is to self-protect. If we do that, we're basically hiding. We cannot come out together. We cannot openly and honestly say, this is what I did. This is what we did. And this is where we are now. What are we going to do? So, what is it? that circumvents my avoidance? What is it that stops me from shifting the, shifting the blame and avoiding the pain? So, I take my pain to God. My embarrassment, my fear of powerlessness, my despair, I climb into her lap and I weep. I am heard, I am held. She knows me, she keeps me, she loves me. The carapace of protection that I have put around my shame for not looking after our home and its life has cracked. God's love for me softens it a bit and enables me to look out to others, to ask what others are experiencing, to ask what happened, and what does it take to make it right? I paraphrased Julian of Norwich earlier, um, the hazelnut, you might have picked it up from Martin's reference to it earlier, but I found another thing from Julian, which to me, is a bit of a lodestone about the power of prayer. Prayer is the deliberate and persevering action of the soul. It is true and enduring and full of grace. Prayer fastens the soul to God and makes it one with God's will. God is my compass. All this is to look for an answer to the question. So, how do we respond? And how does my faith help? I'd like to invite you to leave this place with three questions in your heart and to take them to God. What has happened?
How am I feeling? And dear sweet God, what does it take to put it right? Thank you. <laughs>